Where were you in 1939? Some of you were undoubtedly in the stands to witness this same tune-up for the running of the Memorial Day Classic at the great Indianapolis Speedway Proving Grounds. Perhaps you'd gone beneath the stands for a moment to refresh yourselves with ice soda and frankfurters. Perhaps a neighbor's chance comment had caused you to turn your head. As roaring at full speed around the turns, drivers Floyd Roberts, Chet Miller, and Bob Swanson were bound together by one moment of tragic impact. Oh my god, I'm an idiot. What? What? <laughs> I thought my phone wasn't charging. Turns out I was looking at a screenshot. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to go into the Apple store and have that actually be the thing, you know? Let me just ask you this. It's not a problem either way. I have Apple Care. Uh, not a problem. Am I stuck in a wormhole? Okay. Am I? <laughs> is this the end of days? Uh, is this just the end of days? Because then I won't uh, necessarily get the upgrade. Why should I get a warranty? What's the point of a warranty? <laughs> We're all going to die. Okay, bye. Have a nice day. Hello, everybody. Welcome into the Zal. The Zal is where babka is not just a snack. It's a currency. Joining me, as always, <laughs> is the PhD of comedy, Adam Valen Levinson. Adam, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. With the Indianapolis 500 fast approaching, I figured we can fixate a little bit on this sport. Now, on the street, and perhaps in reality as well, racing is not known as a Jewish sport. Adam, are there any Jewish sports? Oh, God, this is like the classic, you know, thinnest book in the library is a book of Jewish athletes one, you know, <laughs> uh, they're they're Oh, God. I mean, this is you're poking me in the wrong place in the morning. Poking would be fencing. And that's a very Jewish sport. Tons of Jewish fencers never think. But yeah, there's a long Jewish tradition in Austria, Hungary and Germany of Jewish fencers. Is it really? For sure. This is just what I need in every conversation is somebody to step right in before I say something rampantly offensive just just <laughs> hop in i'm gonna go well have you heard of banking you know it's like no 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 actually actually i have an actual point i have an actual historical Sorry for fact stealing your, your storm okay i'll let you go back into that's your, uh... that's stealing me from fault pushing myself down the stairs no it's <laughs> all i know is that they were scraping so hard for jewish athletes that they added chess to the Maccabi okay. Games okay. competition, but I'm waiting for the induction that, of banking. That's legitimate. It's like, did you see the that's last? Where, that's where we really shine in chess. I mean, there's so many Jewish chess players. Mm-hmm. Of course, but is it athletics? What makes <laughs> athletics athletics? There you go. Is the right. brain a muscle? Is the brain not a muscle? Use that for yourself. It turns out that our guest today does not need any introduction, as evident by his dropping fact bombs. We have today Michael Brown of the Indiana Jewish Historical Society. Michael, besides for being a great talent, is also a dear friend of mine. And as you can tell, he is always present with the historical reality of things. So get ready for Adam and I to get seriously reined in on our, what was the word we used? Ruminating? Yeah, pon pontificating, pon pon ponderiferating. <laughs> Michael, welcome into the Zal. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here. Such an honor 
And uh, I, I figured I would just interject a few times quite rudely. <laughs> That's what we do. It's customary we, we, on the Zala as well. We interrupt each other. That's totally. the we all aspire to speak. So <laughs> very un-Midwestern of us. Totally un-Midwestern. I just finished interrupting you talking about Hey, let me, let me just jump in for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> so we brought Michael in today to discuss uh, what is known to be the only Jewish winner of the Indy 500. And not only did this man win the Indy 500, he won it thrice, 1941, 47, and 48. Remember the last Memorial Day Classic just before Pearl Harbor brought us into the Second World War? Did you see the garage on fire that took the focus of attention off the big race? like a dog running across a football field at a tense moment in the big game. High racing hopes, racing cars, and high octane gasoline fuming skyward in the heat of the conflagration. Attention is brought back into focus at the moment a racing car skids and dashes into the track wall. But the race goes on as always. At last the checkered flag is waved and into the winner's pit comes none other than our old friend again, Maurice Rose. And what is interesting about him now i i don't know the amount of history we have of any of the other indy 500 winners from the 30s and the 40s but as i was doing research on this it seemed to me like the information we have about this man is somewhat sparse so just to give you a little bit of a a scoop i got doing a little bit of shoe leather journalism i tracked down the widow of maury rose's son. Maury Rose Jr. was his son, and he was married to a nice woman, and she lives somewhere in Ohio. And I asked her about the Jewishness of Maury Rose, and this was maybe last summer. And she didn't even know that he was Jewish. And as I learned later, and we'll get into this shortly, there seems to be some controversy surrounding his Jewishness. But I was just taken aback by not only did she say, I know about the controversy, and we're taking the side that he's not Jewish, she didn't even know about it. It seemed like it became so much evident within his family. That was just the norm within his family that he was not Jewish, that his very daughter-in-law didn't even know of his background. So this obviously is uh, waters that the Zal does not have expertise in, which is why we brought in uh, Mr. Michael Brown of the Indiana Jewish Historical Society to help discuss this. Well, thank you. So I think one thing about Mari Rose, one of the reasons why I think the sources on him are really sparse was that he wasn't a full-time professional driver. In fact, he looked at his driving as almost mm. a hobby that complemented his engineering career. Whoa. He worked at Allison. He worked at Studebaker Corporation. He worked at GM. And I think one of the things he was most proud of or known for outside of racing was he actually developed a machine that would help amputees be able to drive. Uh, so Whoa. that's a fascinating mm -hmm. fact about Maury Rose. And because he wasn't a professional race car driver, he actually, while he was working in Indianapolis as an engineer, he would take time off from his lunch and go practice at the Indy 500. Uh, and that's how he got his practice, his practice runs in. No one else did that. Yeah. I, I don't think anyone else has done that at the Indy 500. I mean, I could be wrong, but I've never heard of that before. So he was kind of this really outside the norm, didn't really make a lot of friends with the other racers, from what I understand. He didn't really discuss his Jewishness, but in the press, you can see several different places that he's described as a, quote, young Jewish racer, 
and the media hyped up his Jewishness in some places, whereas he kind of didn't really want to discuss that because he saw it as a perhaps a point of contention with the other racers. Other people have speculated. I think Dovid found one incidence where he ran into an anti-Semitic incident, but I can't find a lot of like incidents where he really got in with his fellow racers over his Jewish identity. And I think the other thing about his Jewish identity, one thing that's really important to remember was that he had two immigrant parents. I believe his father, if I'm not mistaken, was like even in the circus. He was from Britain and his mother was from Germany. And when they came to America, to Ohio, they quickly divorced when he was very young. So he received absolutely no Jewish education. I think I mentioned maybe he went to a couple of different Jewish dances or something when he was young, but really no Jewish education whatsoever. Very few Jewish experiences because his parents really didn't think that was important for him. And so he didn't have a Jewish education. That's that's the first thing. So that wasn't really a big part of his life. And I guess he was divorced three times. And from looking at, he actually did teach in a Lutheran Sunday school later on in his life. His third wife, I believe he became a Lutheran after that, at that point. I don't know exactly at what point he stopped like self-identifying as being Jewish, probably when he converted to Lutheranism, I assume. And I don't, you know, it's not really clear if he was ever like involved in any Jew secular Jewish organizations in Indianapolis. There's not a lot of information on that. He also lived in South Bend, Indiana for a while too, while he was working mm -hmm. with Studebaker Corporation. But one thing I think is interesting is that he never worked for Ford. So <laughs> I don't know if that's because of his Jewishness, because he was afraid that Ford wouldn't hire him or a combination of a few things. But that's an interesting thing to know is they never worked. As far as I know, he never worked with Ford. Not to digress too far, but is that well known? Did Henry Ford's oh, yeah. anti-Semitism trickle down that far that he didn't even hire, you know, low level engineers and mechanics? Well, I mean, it's a question of, I mean, would you feel really comfortable with some, you know, working for a company that had a CEO that espoused that, I guess? Mm -hmm. You know, there were mm -hmm. Jews who worked for the Ford Corporation. And there's a funny story, actually, about a reform rabbi who was born in Indiana, who actually lived next to Henry Ford. And he, Henry Ford actually bought him a new Ford, a, a Model T, like every year that he lived next door to him. He gave him a Model T to this rabbi, uh, Franklin. He kept on giving him Model Ts, and he didn't know what to do with them. He was so embarrassed. Imagine living next to one of the most outrageous, outspoken anti-Semites, and he's buying you a new car every year. Well, what would your reaction be? <laughs> I, my thought would be he just keeps being like, here's another car, here's another car. Now you have, get all your people out of here. What else do you need? <laughs> I got you a whole flotilla or whatever. <laughs> I need a party bus? Gay. You know, there were a few different Jews that, that Henry Ford did associate with on an individual basis. But, you know, his anti-Semitism was so vicious and so renowned that I think it even probably made someone like uh, Mari Rosen comfortable, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no there's no Disney movie about this guy either. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Digression, digression. 
digression. Because information on, on Mari is so sparse, any information that you do get is obviously prone to exaggeration. So even the questions of his Jewishness, and it's hilarious, he's being inducted and then revoked or removed from the Jewish Athletes Hall of Fame, you know, depending on which newspaper you're in, right. which print of it it is in, which is, which is hilarious and fascinating and goes to the old jokes that we were right. mentioning before. But do you think Amari's experience and, and general views of his identity is at all a representation of the general Jewish mood in the in the Midwest between, let's say, 1870s and 1950s or 60s? It's an interesting question of how many, you know, Jews in the second generation assimilated. And I don't have an exact number for you, but... Again, I mean, he divorce was also much lower um, at that time. So his parents' divorce at an early age was less common. So if he would have not have been in the circumstances that he was in. But one thing that's interesting to note is that his sister, not to get too far off your question, his sister actually remained Jewish as far as I can tell. But, you know, I think it was really individual to individual. So it's really hard to give to give mm-hmm. like a finite number of you know what the assimilation rate was. I'm not I'm not talking about rate as much as I am mentality philosophy. But I guess an interesting thought was that unlike European assimilation, American assimilation was much less active, far more passive. So when you have an active assimilation, there's a lot of philosophies and ideologies that are flowing through why someone is trying to actively assimilate. When it's passive, it's just passive. It's just society. It's just sociology doing its job on a people. So it's, there's much less cohesion between those individuals. Adam, is any of this making sense? You're the actual expert on sociology. <laughs> I, I think there's there's too many too many moving pieces here for any of us to be on, on all of the balls. But But it's that... I think you're completely right that the the idea of assimilating in America was such a powerful and deliberate thing that people did a lot of things, you know, I mean, including naming Jewish children Harold. I mean, that's a, you know, it's an enormous move to say we're going to, now I'm taking, you know, there's Saul and Gittle and Moisha over here. And it's like, and have you met Greg (laughs) Rosenblatt? That's (laughs) To do something like mm-hmm. that is exactly what you're saying. It's super, super active. I think that what we what we cross here is into this whole other level of territory where it's not necessarily about assimilation, wanting to be a part of a group, or wanting to hide out of safety or any other concerns. This, we like run the whole gamut with Maury Rose. I just wanted to read a couple of things that, that David, you'd pulled out from these newspapers going back 80 years. I mean, at the at the very beginning, you know, in the in the 30s, all these the Jewish Post is talking about him as the only Jewish driver. This is something I thought was you, you say you say we didn't have like perfect history or like we don't have you know we're, we can't be sure. I have to take everything with a grain of of Morton's, but there is something from this Jewish Post article in 1948 from June 4th, 1948. Little Maury Rose, the swarthy Jewish driver. Little Maury Rose. So we know something. Okay, maybe he was giant. <laughs> Maybe it was giant as a... It sounds it's, Trumpy. Hey, little boy. <laughs> it's little, little Maury Rose, the swarthy Jewish driver, copped the fastest rate. That's how you know it's real. They copped. Who says, little Maury Rose, the swarthy Jewish driver, copped the fastest race in the history of the cars. And $43,200. Exact amount of money. 
from the first week of June 1948. So you would imagine the, the Jewish Post might have had other things to be reporting on <laughs> that particular month. In May of 1948, a new Jewish state, Israel, was born in a bath of blood. But hey, you know, whatever. That's just, there it is. There it is in, in black and white. Then you have in the 70s, what is it, the Jewish Athletes Hall of Fame? What's the, yeah, the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame? There are probably more compilers of Jewish Sports Hall of Fames than there are athletes yes. in those Hall yes, of Fames. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's true. It's like kosher, kosher uh, whatever, but there was just kosher too many. Kosher supervision. It's like the guy got the stamp and they're like, that stamp, we don't honor that stamp. <laughs> he, he he did get inducted in, into another Jewish Hall of Fame, like the International Jewish Athlete Hall of Fame in 2007. So I guess they just like ignored that other president. Ignored or it's Jews being like, oh, you did it that way? Really? Okay. Exactly, Adam. Or the Jewish population became so, so much of Maury Rose's mentality. He was just early to it. He's like, oh, he actually left behind his faith and converted to Lutheranism? That is so Jewish. <laughs> Throw him into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I honestly didn't know any of that. And, and the other thing is that I didn't even know, like, early on, I, I, you know, you know the winners, but no one really made him out to be the Jewish racer. Like, that wasn't really his identity. Mm -hmm. He was the lesser known sort of of all of the people that have won the most races, the one that you talk about the least. And so I, you know, growing up, I didn't know that he was Jewish, A. B, it wasn't so apparent, but I guess in the 1940s, it was, or in 1930s, it was pretty obvious that he was Jewish. So, go mm -hmm. figure. The Zal is brought to you by It'll Go Bad Tomorrow, a new meal prep service made by Jewish mothers delivered straight to your door, along with your mother. The meal certainly will not go bad tomorrow, but you'll eat it just to get your mother to stop guilting you. Where other meal delivery companies try to reduce the stress of cooking, we'll increase stress, guilt, and agitation, helping you burn calories while you eat. Try It'll Go Bad Tomorrow. It'll go bad tomorrow. It won't, but okay, fine. I'll eat it. I guess just to get this sense of what the context was he was existing in when when the, the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, the... JSHF, the famous JSHF stamp. They said they tracked him down. They went to his house, and and what they'd said was all of his friends knew him as a Jew. And then when they got there, he said, "Well, I'm not." And their quote was, "The committee does not consider it our province to debate an individual's religious preference." no matter how super his athletic accomplishments. And so now we get into these massive questions about identity, and David, mm -hmm. you and I were kind of going back and forth about this a ton last night, but the idea of kind of boiling everything down to Jew or not Jew, do you get the trophy where the guy's holding like a hamantash and standing on a thing or whatever, <laughs> or not, and that comes down to an idea of like religious preference, just to flatten everything down into religious preference, to me seems completely off the mark. But then at the same time, they're taking what he said and this person writing their own story and their own legend. So that's why I think this becomes just a springboard for so many much huger issues than than just mm -hmm. about this guy who sounds great. Actually, no, we have no idea if he sounds like a fun guy or not, do we? Well, I'll tell you what, he had a cameo in the movie To Please a Lady with Clark Gable. Okay. And Barbara okay. Stanwyck, which, if he hooked wow. that up, he must have some connection to, f to fun. Hmm. 
All the soft spots aren't on the track. Well, you keep your mind on the ones that are. Wow, yeah. You know what? Oh, let's just leave it at that. Um. <laughs> yeah, you're asking the, the very important question, and obviously, besides for rabbis, but in the modern state of Israel, this became even more controversial because besides for this being theoretical and a religious question for all of Jewish history, it also became one of the law once Israel was founded as whether someone can opt in or opt out of their Judaism and therefore gain automatic citizenship in Israel. So a very broad question. And obviously, the Jewish legal perspective, halacha, weighs in pretty heavily and says kind of somewhere in the middle where it definitely has this religious trappings. But if your mom is Jewish, no matter your own religious belief, that's inescapable and you're just Jewish. I see other parties and other opinions on this matter. You and I were going back and forth on this last night, and I kind of summarized it with the, the purely genetic argument, which is not the halachic argument, mind you, because uh, according to Jewish law, you can convert, which converted Jew doesn't have any of the Jewish genes. So I want to say explicitly that if you're going purely with genetics, and some people do, you aren't necessarily consistent with, with Jewish law. But then there's the general cultural framing, where someone just says, I don't really get into the theology, but I like a filter fish, and I listen to, you know, this music, and I love Larry David, and I get his jokes almost in, in my essence, Therefore, I'm Jewish. And all of these things are extremely complex, extremely vague. And and I think generally speaking, not to get too heavy on a lighter topic, wherever you fall on this, on this matter, I think it is almost basic that you need to at least give credence to the other opinions in a certain way. So, for example, if I am adhering to the Jewish legal side of things and say, if someone's mom is Jewish or they converted according to Jewish law, they're Jewish. But if they didn't, then they're not. That doesn't mean that I can't be sensitive to, let's say, somebody who has some patrilineal descending Jewishness, right, from their dad and is facing anti-Semitism in high school. You need to be a terrible person to say, oh, actually, according to Jewish law, you're on your own for this one, buddy. You'd have to be Mm -hmm. absolutely out of your mind. And that's obviously the, the least Jewish sentiment possible. So all of this conversation probably deserves an episode for itself. But definitely, the thing that is clear to me is that we must be sensitive to other people's experiences and thoughts on this matter, not just completely negate them, even if we disagree with them. I think historically, you have some really interesting characters we could look at. We could look at Spinoza. Was Spinoza Jewish? Even though he didn't self, he was excommunicated and didn't self-define himself as being Jewish. But halakhically speaking, Spinoza, would be Jewish, or right. I had a professor, Dr. Irving Katz, who gave, who tried to come up with a definition of Jewishness, and it was something like this: his basic definition was was a Jew is someone who the majority of the Jewish community believes to be Jewish or perceives to be Jewish, and a person who self defines themselves as part of the Jewish community. That was his working definition, rather than a halakhic definition, which sometimes presents its own issues because, like, look at the, some of the inquisitors were Jews themselves. So, I mean, you want to talk about the Jewishness mm-hmm. of one of the inquisitors? Okay, I mean, <laughs> I mean you get in some really uncomfortable uh, stories. <laughs> Obviously, probably yeah. a topic that really... I always say that the more controversial a topic is, the longer you need to talk about it because <laughs> it just requires proper proper sleeve rolling. The, the, longer, the longer you should, but like the shorter you should. You know? Exactly. 
all all of these we end up in the territory of is it necessary or sufficient and i think what becomes really tricky is when we talk about self-definition like you're saying or getting kicked out of the tent from my understanding it's like you can't, you can't get kicked out of the tent at least definitively you can't mm-hmm. like once you once you have once you are you are you, you just are like that's it you can't do anything that's one of the beautiful parts about judaism like the idea of being a bad jew because you didn't keep passover this or that mm-hmm. it's like Yeah, but you still, like, your identity is fully intact. There's other Mm -hmm. kind of spiritual elements that are changing, but nobody's taking away some part of, like, I am this. So then the other side of that is, is, well, can you kick yourself if you've met one of these sufficient, I think maybe it should be, I think my tent is, like, very large. Like, if you're, you know, if you've watched the producers, like, three times, you know, (laughs) you've watched, like, the remake with you know, Matthew Broderick also, and then have thoughts about the comparison. Like, you're, you know, you're a Jew. Okay, say that doesn't count. Say that's not sufficient. But having 19 Jewish grandparents is sufficient. It just is. So then can you kick yourself out of the tent when that's already the the ticket you have? I That's where it becomes very, very, Mm -hmm. very confusing it, it becomes i mean confusing in in like a intellectually interesting sense but but unanswerable it's actually interesting again not to go further into this controversy we probably should back this up because the all of us are pretty academic about this but the heat is definitely very high as far as topic goes but it's interesting because <laughs> each of us pretty much represent the three views that i think exist in other words i definitely come from the more religious standpoint and a jew is a jew is a jew which has that similarity to Adam's viewpoint, but it's less a cultural or, or even your grandparents. It, it has the permanence of it, but it's just a permanence that comes from Jewish law and less Jewish culture and genetics. And then I think Michael Brown represents the, the idea-driven one, where if somebody kind of subscribes, and all of this, ta- each of these tastes from one another's bowls as well, obviously. But if you had to really generalize, it's it's far more saying, oh, you have a Jewish belief system, you subscribe to the particulars of an idea, then you're Jewish. But if you become an inquisitor, then you're then you're totally not. Which these things are not mm. simple questions. But but it's interesting that you know even though we didn't realize we're going to go so f- so far into the fire, uh, we actually have good representation <laughs> of all the camps. I'm not sure if those are my perspectives necessarily. They're just an academics, you know, a way of a way of framing gotcha. things. Because it's mm-hmm. identity is complicated, and America is a very individualistic society. You know, in the Soviet Union, a person might not have any Jewish experiences, but it's stamped on their passport that they're Jewish. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the United right. States, right. you might put on a tallit, a tefillin, and, and you know, daven three times a day and keep the highest level of kosher and follow everything in the Mishnah Torah. But at the end of the day, what do you have to prove that you're Jewish? There's no documentation. You're doing that right. because you live in a society that allows you to do that, not because you're being mm-hmm. compelled by a government around you. So it's a different type of system. You know, in America, everyone kind of does it by their own volition, by their own choice, rather than being compelled by a system that tells them who they are and where they have to live and what they have to do.
So, so you know what makes me think it's so different this distinction between the material and the immaterial proofs the you know archival or the stamps and and then versus the narrative on the other side but what it makes me think as maybe a addendum or a, a slight edit to dr katz's categorization definition yeah it's identifying as a jew if the majority of not Jews, if the majority of anti-Semites think you're a Jew. Well, I mean, that's an interesting way of reframing because he said the Jewish community itself, you know, whatever that is, whatever, you know, consists of the majority of the Jewish community. But yeah, if anti-Semites define you as a Jew, which that happens all the time that people are mislabeled as Jews who are in fact not Jews. That's an interesting question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The miss or the labeling, is it correct or not? So Maury Rose could say, well, you're mislabeling me. But it's it's that your ability to write your own story in a way that's meaningful, which means that it interacts with other people's ways of making meaning in the world. You can tell yourself anything all day long. It doesn't matter until it comes out and interacts with other people. It's cool. It's great. You have a story you tell yourself. But if it doesn't connect with anybody else, that's mm-hmm. kind of what we think of like crazy people. They're not interacting. So to interact, it just depends. It fundamentally depends on the narratives that you're that you're engaged in, the the river of stories that you kind of pull, right. you know, put your current and pull your I'm running out of metaphors about water and fish, but like you get it, you know? It's locks, okay? It's hard to be a, <laughs> it's hard to be locks in a river, okay? You're really at you're <laughs> I think this conversation is really healthy because if someone wants to summarize what a Jew is for everything and they boil it down to a one-liner, I think they're probably not doing a service to people. I get it that in, in the academy you need a working definition, but I think it's healthy to say, okay, according to Jewish law and Jewish religion, you'd be Jewish. According to the Hitler you would be Jewish in these contexts. According to your bowling league, you'd be Jewish in these contexts. And all of those things are important. And just because someone wouldn't receive an aliyah in a halacha-observing shul doesn't mean they shouldn't be invited into the bowling league and doesn't mean they should not be defended from Hitler. And same vice versa in all directions. Just because somebody, let's say someone's mother's mother's mother is Jewish, which Hitler would say that guy's kosher because he's not a quarter Jewish, he's only an eighth Jewish, he could receive an aliyah in a halachic shul because it's matrilineal. So these things are complex and it's very important just to know contexts and the different buckets. Now, where you put each situation will depend on how you define your buckets, but I think it's really healthy just to know about the existence of particular buckets. And that they're they're sloshing around into each other. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Mike. I just know that I just, Mike, you are now part of what is no matter what going to be a successful episode, no matter how convoluted, because we managed to put Hitler and bowling in the same sentence. So we got there, baby. This is my question for Dovid, because he's obviously the resident on Hasidut. And this isn't history, but rather philosophical. So would you say that the concept of Pintalid is something that is inherent or would you say it's something that's aspirational would you say it's something that that person has to have the drive to want to do that to want to go up and get that alia or is it just something that is absolutely essential or inherent in the person that they'll go up and you know take the alia you know 
which do you think it is or a little bit of both maybe yeah probably both i we have a lot of words in that question that require uh the zal's patented four word definitions <laughs> the pentaliyid is probably the big complex one but and according to jewish mysticism kabbalah hasidus every jew is in possession of this tiny drop of it's called, literally it's the drop of jewishness but it's it's in the heart of the heart of one's soul which is there and it exists no matter what you've done in your life both for the good and for the bad and is equal and you know a lot of deep mystical concepts that are attached to it so much for forward definition sorry adam what's a word what's a sentence you know if a sen- if, if if a word if a sentence really feels like a word just full of hyphens so so Mike's question was whether this is inherent, and if you mean by inherent like it's passed on from father to son, it can be, but a Jewish convert also attains it, so it's not inherent in that sense. But if your use of the word inherent means that it does its job no matter what, then it's definitely not. It's definitely not inherent, and it could be the work of a lifetime to uncover it and, and to let it shine. So inherent in the sense that it's there no matter what, but not inherent at all that it'll do anything unless you you're either unless you're either in some insane situation that maybe happens once in your life or most people doesn't even happen once in your life that's when the pintaliyid comes to the fore thanks to external factors but usually if you want your pintaliyid to come to the fore it's going to have to be through inner working and inner toil but that's a fascinating question that yeah the tanya addresses directly yeah i I mean i ask that because i think a lot of other a lot of other jews and a lot of other people don't really know how hasidim look at the assimilated jewish world how they factor into their own theological structures and that's something that a lot of people don't really know or don't really understand or appreciate right it depends in which context if we're talking about identity then it simply exists it simply exists and and there's no good or bad that you could do to change that. If you want to live with it, if you want it to have an affect, then that's going to involve a lot of work. I feel like we need some Star Trek metaphors, some, you know, Romulans and Klingons, <laughs> you know, for scenic groups, you know, and, and Star Trek comparisons. <laughs> leave it to a Romulan to run at the first sign of trouble. And leave it to a Klingon to leap to the wrong conclusion. Good luck, gentlemen. Good luck to all of us. Romulans don't believe in luck. All the better. Leaves more for the rest of us. We got to be careful with our comparisons because even like the elephant in the room, the elephant in the room, elephants and Jews. Now, what do they have in common? (laughs) And it's not that they're both like working in Hollywood. It's, you know, there's something. No, but hold on. I think the, the... the beautiful thing that made me think about and I, I don't think English I wonder if there are any languages that really have this but the distinction between being as an active or a passive yeah verb like to to be what well, we think well just so, something is, well, is okay that has a passive sense but being mm-hmm. literally it's a verb there's an action mm-hmm. there on one hand it really is something that just sits it has to it's passively there in this ancient metaphor for i think effectively is what people think of as blood which then connects to all this Mm -hmm. other potentially terrible stuff but the drop the bit in the soul that's just there being the being it is something that's maybe maybe that's why we fight about it that's but that's why you fight because we we end up having these 
totally different aspects of something, but at the end of the day, they're contained in the same word and same concept. Even in our head, we can't fundamentally mm-hmm. extricate them. And so, of course, you're going to fight about it. Last thing, this is what I saw this in an art exhibit. I, ha- I feel like I have to mention it. It wasn't the, the actual piece of art. This was the only time that the plaque on the wall was actually like, oh, wow, I'm glad they had that. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it said it was describing this. Uh, it was just like a Venn diagram in light. And it said that during the uh, dictatorship in Argentina in the 70s, Venn diagrams were banned from being taught in schools, from existing, just from being on anything. Even the idea that two things that feel different could overlap is anathema. Like, we just can't conceptualize it. Well, then, of course, we're going to start having these complications we're going to start shutting down like a computer program that can't run properly because it doesn't know what the parameters are that's so smart yeah i love that you know and the other thing i think the thing about maury is that he doesn't seem to be a person that really lets any of that get in his way but he sort of cloaks his jewishness though instead of today he could have been let's think of all the different jewish sports stars that are very proud of their jewishness Uh, that almost you couldn't imagine them not being Jewish, right? And I think we have people like Sandy Koufax to thank. We have people like Hammering Hank Greenberg because when he was growing up, when Mari Rose was growing up, there weren't examples like that. I mean, there were Jewish boxers. Mm. There were a few, you know, amateur Jewish basketball players, but there wasn't anyone proudly out there coming out and saying, look, I'm proudly Jewish and I'm a pro athlete and I'm doing both at the same time. That didn't exist during Maury Rose's lifetime. And so he didn't really have any examples from his childhood to cling on to of, yeah, I can be Jewish mm-hmm. and I can be a pro racer at the same time. It just didn't dawn on him, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's part of it as well. And the society also probably didn't see a pro racer as being Jewish any more than they would see an African-American pro racer because the default of a race car driver was a white Protestant you know, guy who's spitting tobacco, who's got like a Texas accent. Like th- that's the stereotype basically. Mm-hmm. Right. Doesn't look like a driver. Yeah. Yeah. This all is brought to you by Banana Shevitz. Does your kiddish wine not have enough potassium? Try Banana Shevitz, the only kosher banana wine available. And not, not for good reason. Why would you say that? Banana Shevitz is made from the finest bananas they have near the checkout at Zabar's and is recommended by zero out of five dentists. Banana Shevitz. Monkeys like it, so why shouldn't you? Isn't some of this, and if, if these seem historically totally off the mark, but the idea that, that in, in, in one sense, athletes didn't have the reverence they have now. So the idea of going, yeah. oh, I'm going to have this role model who's like a, you know, a, a schlub guy with a cigar in his mouth hitting a ball around for people to watch. It's like nobody was like, that's the pinnacle of being, I mean, even musicians, yeah. like all these things that didn't have the... The romance, not to mention the money that came with them. It seems that once Maury became successful as a driver, his Jewishness became a little bit more of a fixation. According to one book, there was leaflets handed out mm-hmm. at the Indy 500 with a picture of him saying Jew or not Jew, 
which is is interesting, but kind of as a testament to how far the Jewish community has come, where if you hear the word Jew or not Jew today, it's definitely coming from a Jewish person. You know, the Jew or not Jew dot com is owned by, you know, bagel fresh. Right. Like their logo right. is a bagel, I think. It's literally a website. And anytime you're curious about the Jewishness of somebody, they have the search <laughs> engine optimized to to have their website appear. Oh my God! Have we tried? Have we? Have we? Have we put him yeah, but into the thing? We have their sources plus. I understand, but but yeah, what is th- authoritative? That website does say he's Jewish. Yes, Jew or not Jew says that Maury Rose is Jewish. He would be really surprised, I think, by that. I mean, he would probably be a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you'd be perturbed by that or not. He has out of ten, he scores a twelve. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you're right. He got bonus points for going, eh, I'm not really a Jew. What's a Jew anyway? Mike Mike is grimacing so hard that we're using this as a source. <laughs> that's your that's the finite, that's the definition. And yeah, that's the, that's the last authority in the world. But yeah, Jew or not Jew went from being an anti-Semitic flyer to being uh-huh. some source of quelling for internet consuming Jews, <laughs> which is, you know, I guess it, I, I guess it's a good thing. <laughs> It's a mitzvah. At the end of the day, it's a, you know he's provided. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention it, it, Chappelle's f- famous racial draft. Good evening and welcome to the first and maybe only racial draft here in New York City. <laughs> Folks, this is for all the marbles. What happens here will state the racial standing of these Americans once and for all. Bring in the black delegation. King <laughs> Tiger Woods. No surprises there, the richest and most dominant athlete in the world. His father, black, his mother, Thai. Well, it doesn't matter anymore because now he is officially black. You know, when somebody becomes like a champion of something, a Mm -hmm. symbol of something positive, of course, a group Mm -hmm. as a group and the individual as part of that group wants to claim them, claim some connection and feel close to it. And that's another another way in which your narrative gets tangled up in other people's and that and i think that is a thing that that like celebrities often have a huge problem with where they go i, right. I just want to define myself and you're and you're doing all of it for me it's like well you gave yourself to us so also do whatever you want but you'll you're not going to change my mind i guess you know he could be driving he could be going on sports center every day you know the indy 500 hey well do you want to talk about that as a He's like, as i am the only such Jewish- a guy you have no idea i'm a total guy <laughs> look i'm eating bacon cheese look i'm i'm watching desperate housewives what do you want from me they like listen to yourself maury maury rose come on but, but i come think on. that's the other part is that the society wants to have these symbols they want to have these good examples of jews who did incredible things to show hey look look what you can do if you put your mind to it you know you can be a sports star and be jewish so mm. you know there's so many people that had their who, who want maury rose to be jewish to be an example at the race car you know at the indy 500 they want kids to look up to that one of the people that you had on jew or not to not a jew was uh maurice rose uh sounds so close to maury rose and it's so fascinating how his his issue of identity is so similar to Mari Rose. So there were a lot of uh, Jewish uh, veterans associations that were named after General Maurice Rose. 
Have I just completely lost it? Have I totally lost the thread here? Definitely. No, so. both of you are very much in ruminating territory, which I love. And I absolutely love that, <laughs> that we've completely converted the <laughs> hard fact Mike Brown into very much a Zal-like figure. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> All right, Toiv Chevre. Thank you for having me on your show on the Zal, getting into the Zal in ways I never imagined. And I, I don't know what you're going to call this episode. Maybe you can call it Midwestern Interrupted. <laughs> Why? Because we all we all belong in a psych ward. Is that what it is? Yeah. All right, friends. Michael, thank you for making the time. Adam, we'll talk soon. The final lap. And out comes the checkered flag. And gliding into the pit is the winning car and champion driver, Maury Rose. Water now, champagne later. Well, the, the last thing that I just I felt like I had to ask you based on earlier is, um, do you th- would uh, do you, would Hitler be fun to bowl with? <laughs> <laughs> Came up. I had to. I started thinking about it. I was thinking about it half the episode. I'm like, yeah, Definitely I don't know. Not. You don't think so? He'd be like, it's my turn. <laughs> right, you know? Extremely pedantic. <laughs> um, it didn't count one of the pins. Excuse me. It wobbled. There was a wobble there. <laughs> it's my right that it falls over. That's like Aryan Make a Wish Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to bowl with Hitler. <laughs> He's like, I'm not taking it easy on you. And also these shoes are too big. <laughs> Why is there so much leftover shoes? Why are there so many leftover shoes? Oh God! Oh I'm sorry. no! I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> no. Is that why? Is that why all those exhibits was really just because Hitler was like, "Well, I'm. I think when this whole thing blows over, I'll take a bowling. I'll get into bowling. Open up a nice. Open up a nice." Alley. Uh, this will not be popular on the Adolf internet. Adolf Lanes. Oh my gosh, people will hate us. <laughs> Come on down to Adolf Lanes. We we pay for your trains to Adolf it's a, it's Lanes. A really niche bowling alley in Argentina. It's crazy. After the war, all these bowling alleys just popped up. So strange. Argentina, fantastic sauerkraut at the bowling alley. Why? The retiree bowling capital of the world. So strange. Don't look into it. No one knows how it happened. Why is there all this jewelry just kind of in the bowling balls? Why are they? And everyone insists on banking with the Swiss. What's up with that? <laughs> all they take is Swiss francs. Very, very strange. Why is there a sign on the bathroom that instead of saying "please wash hands" says "don't ask questions"? Why is that? <laughs> Red flag. <laughs>